Let's we'll do this. Okay. This is the Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM or on your beautiful local community radio station. Or on the where you love to feed your ears with the delicious regurgitated refuse of Stephen Christian Irwin Hostetter. That's rough. That is a rough review. Not nice thing to say. <laughs> Podcasts, that's what I meant. There you go. Yeah, my trick with podcasts is if I cue enough of them up and have them go one right after the other, I don't have to hear my own thoughts. The Green Majority. Don't think. <laughs> Just listen. Listen to this. Stefan Hostetter. That's me. Lauren Latour. Woohoo! I am a nameless chicken coop of a void. Stefan's going to be interviewing Lucas Redman and Shauna Cannell, who are both students with the University of Ottawa. We'll be chatting about their recent win in against RBC on campus and what they're doing from there. Big shout out to Banking for a Better Future for connecting us. Actually. They're at RBC. They're U of O. They are. They were targeting RBC with some actions and had a, oh, had a win that we're RBC. RBC is not a university. It is. I mean, at least not yet. Okay. They did apparently take over a student space in the U of O, which was one of the reasons why they really angered the students there. They just like took over a study space to put like a weird RBC like pop up that like where they had financial planners for some reason during COVID. They were helping the students invest, and uh, we're going to do some impactful climate news. Hard hitting stuff. But again, please, if you're a new listener, do not expect hard-hitting opinions. This is mostly <laughs> just gobbledygook. We're just filling the airwaves for your specific ability to just tune out the world and tune in. Honestly, something that could be almost certainly more depressing than your own thoughts. Okay. Okay. You're underselling the, the sadness of everybody's thoughts, first of all. It's <laughs> a good point. Second of all, all one needs to do is listen to our thoughts as they meander unconsciously through the neural pathways. Dave, have you ever thought about doing sleep meditations? I think you could record a good sleep meditation. I listen to them every night because, again, can't be alone with my own thoughts even when I'm trying to fall asleep. When I hit my corporate tarot reading years in a decade or so, That's I'll consider that as well as part of my new age package can i tell you what if, if anyone wants to support green majority uh, and any sort we will try to get dave to record a sleep meditation for you i will take on the responsibility of writing the script though i do oh. not trust dave to not skew into nightmare territory <laughs> i reserve the right to spontaneous creative control and expression <laughs> would expect nonetheless shall we get to our topics off the top what are those uh well 
very briefly, I want to circle back to a conversation we had last week about Just Transition, and then you've got one uh, about advertising and the world we live in. Right, because you were complaining about the Albertan premiere. Yes. And now you're going to complain about the official opposition. I mean, specifically, if you didn't believe Lauren and I last week that this Just Transition is going to be a hot-button issue for this year and incoming future, may Rachel Notley's comments this week point us to the fact that this is going to be a much more annoying conversation uh, than we... Might have guessed even a week ago, but probably not. This makes a lot of sense. Rachel Notley responding to a currently not tabled bill. Let's start there. The bill, which is called the Sustainable Jobs Legislation, which is meant to support a just transition, has not even hit the floor. Is that what you call it? The Slap that paper on the floor. That's called tabling. Uh, and yet already has Daniel Smith saying it's going to ruin Alberta. And then, of course, because Rachel Notley, instead of maybe providing some sort of alternative vision about how we could, you know, ensure that workers are taken care of, instead decides to simply parrot a slightly toned down version of the same comments, tweeting out, quote, the federal government has to put the brakes completely on its sustainable jobs legislation, as well as plans for the emissions cap. We need real care and competence when it comes to Albertan jobs. And let me remind you of Lauren, Lauren's comments last week, which is the just transition is exactly what it looks like to care and have competence for Albertan jobs. That is what this looks like. We do not want to recreate the cod fisheries or things like that. A just transition is caring for Albertans' jobs. It's ensuring they have jobs in the future that aren't burning the planet. That's the goal. That's the entire goal of this legislation or of the just transition more generally. Yeah, I can't remember if we said this last week. I definitely didn't come up with this. I read this somewhere else, but it was just like such like a beautifully succinct way of phrasing it. It's like the transition is going to happen regardless. The only thing a just transition, like a just transition legislation or a just transition when you hear people fighting for it is trying to do is, is, is make that transition more equitable and less trash for people. The transition, inevitable. No, no turning back, baby. <laughs> the only thing that we have the capacity to change is how it affects people's lives. And theoretically, the just transition that people are calling for, I can't say right now that the act is going to be like the silver bullet that does it. It probably won't be. We'll probably be critiquing it. I don't know, on a Wednesday evening, six months from now, but like, <laughs> but, but still for all intents and purposes, the just part of a just transition is what people are pushing for. And justice is a good thing. Generally speaking, we will be talking in a couple weeks, hopefully uh, with a professor at U of uh, the university of Toronto Scarborough about what a just transition looks like for people in Scarborough. Uh, she's doing some research there and a listening project there. So interestingly, of course, it's not just about oil jobs. It's about a larger conversation. So we will keep talking about this. But for now, Dave, you have some thoughts about the state of capitalism. Okay, that's maybe being a bit too grand. All right. Picture me and Stefan in the club. Yeah, just picture that. It's bumping, smooth, just being jockeyed in there by a, by a bunch of handlers forced into those dark corridors. <laughs> Sexy. Um... Anyway, above the urinals in the club, you've got these bright screens. So, so, so all you can do is look at the bright screen, right? And it's an advertisement for Bell Canada that just shows this untouched landscape, wilderness landscape. And it just says, Bell is moving towards carbon neutral operations. Then I saw a television 
uh, ad, I think it was for Mazda or some car company on TV. And it put up this, it, it presented this whole scenario of this cute old woman who just like, I guess, hangs out. I don't know if she just hangs out at Mazda dealerships or if they just know her for some reason. But the whole point of the ad is she loves donating to charity. And like her whole passion is giving other people's stuff to charity. And the, and so the whole commercial is not selling an, a, a car. They're just filling the car with random stuff that then the, the, the old woman is now being allowed to drive to her charities to, to give all this stuff away. And so the whole point of the ad is just to show that they're a good company who likes old women who do charity. And so, so it's, a, it's a kind of advertising. Like the people, the people who put it in the club know who's there and what they're doing there, right? They know everybody's on drugs and they know they can't think and the music is pounding and all they can do is stare at this little thing. And so it's getting underneath the mind in a certain way. And it's not about selling anything. It's just about showing you that the corporation is benevolent because they know that their power can't be touched by per by purchasing decisions. It's not like they have to sell a product. If they don't sell enough, they're screwed. It's, it's the kind of advertising that shows that the corporation is so confident in their power continuing, their monopolization continuing, that they're not attempting to sell anything. They're just trying to show that you should trust them. They're trying to sell you just them as an entity. When you hear earlier at the very beginning, Dave mentioned that Bell says moving towards net zero or whatever that is, carbon neutral. carbon neutral. Remember that when we get to the conversation about offsets, that's coming up. But the other part, Dave, your last line I thought was that you had sort of written out, I don't know what you said specifically, I thought was actually quite to the point, which is that it's like the goal of these is in part to tell you that the system doesn't need to change. Like part of the goal is things are fine. Therefore, don't look behind the curtain. And in the conversation we had last week uh, with, with Craig Dessen, one of the things we remarked on, or we had a conversation about, was how Canada seems to create monopolies. Whether it's the telecoms, whether it is the train lines, or, or where we get our food from, how many of those are actually just owned by, you know, owned by Loblaws. And, like, Bell doesn't need to convince you to buy it because what are you going to do? Go to Rogers? It's They're not any better. All they need to do is convince you that they're good enough to not question the fact that we are actually have almost no choice in almost anything because one or two companies owns nearly everything in this country of, of significant import. And with something like telecom, even if you theoretically do pick a third-party provider, like... Fido or Freedom or I use Tech Savvy for my for my home internet. You're still using either Bell or Rogers lines. It is still really only internet connectivity or cellular connectivity being purchased from those larger entities. There is no such thing as a small indie or not even indie, just like any other telecom company. You're right. It's like it is. It's a plague of the Canadian condition. Yeah. And and I think that that's you know partially what this kind of messaging is trying to get you to sort of just allow and move on from is it's just sort of like yeah we're we're going to be carbon neutral guys it'll be okay so you'll be fine don't look behind the curtain move on you know and yeah but it's partially because they're so confident in their power yeah right? they're so they know that no matter what you buy you're they're, buying from they're them. still going to be there they're still going to be there because because the companies get larger and larger 
they even move on from their original product. And so then, so then they can. So then, once they have enough capital, they just put it out to wherever makes capital, and then all of a sudden, your company literally can't lose. Just because of the diversification and the reach, you know, like unless you commit fraud, you're just going to merge or you're going to, you know, keep buying. And even if you do commit fraud, it's like in Canada, generally speaking, nationwide, we have two grocery store chains that own every single grocery store. You either have Sobeys or you have the Loblaws company. And it doesn't matter if you think going to a No Frills or a Fresh Co or whatever. It's like, no, it's it's owned by one of those two companies. And it's to the point where like the Westons fixed bread prices. It did not matter. I'm sure any effect that that might have had on their buyership was minimal and momentary. Like they have a stranglehold on like the food that we nourish ourselves with. And there is no other option. Sure, you can go to a farmer's market on a Saturday instead, but you're not getting all of your food from that farmer's market on a Saturday. You're getting like, I don't know, the kale that you're using in a salad to impress your friends with. Like it's, we are, yeah, (laughs) we are shackled by these companies to the point where, yeah, all they have to do is put up like a picture of a tree in a bar for us to be like, yeah, sure, whatever, man, Bell, I guess. I mean, yeah, it's like, what else, you know, what else are we going to do? I don't know, like, because it does feel overwhelming. Um, but yes, just one last thing before we go to music break and come back to the news. Remember, Bell going carbon neutral is likely relying on carbon offsets to do so. And we'll get to that in a second. Possibly. I looked on their website. I didn't say it didn't mention carbon off- offsets, but they also didn't mention that much about how they're doing it at all about how they're doing (laughs) they're just cutting emissions from their operations and just just from their operations and so operations itself is like just a part of the business to their term operations yeah that's like it's like you'll occasionally get like a city for instance saying like the city of say we'll say ottawa not that this is a thing the people that work at the city of ottawa are great people i'm not smashing them lol um bashing them uh was the word (laughs) i meant to use (laughs) But uh, but no, it's like you'll get a city saying like, and we're going carbon neutral. And what that actually means is like the buildings that the city owns are going carbon neutral, not actually like every building in the city or like my university tried to do like stuff like that. Right. Where it's like it's all in it's all in the verbiage. Um, and usually it's like it's, it's scope one. It's teeny weeny. We're going to do some climate news. New analysis published in the journal Science is showing that Exxon not only knew that their product was causing climate change back in the 70s and then began a dedicated campaign to deceive the public about it, but also that their own internal research into climate change accurately predicted the warming that has happened and has been pretty much on par with academic research. The abstract reads, quote, Moreover, we show that ExxonMobil scientists correctly dismissed the possibility of a coming ice age in favor of a carbon dioxide-induced superinterglacial, accurately predicted that human-caused global warming would first be detectable in the year 2000, plus or minus five years, and reasonably estimated how much CO2 would lead to a dangerous warming. And uh, as Inside Climate News reports, quote, in 2004, Exxon said publicly that scientific uncertainties continue to limit our ability to make objective quantitative determinations about humanity's role in climate change. 
And as late as 2013, uh, Rex Tillerson, who was the chief of ExxonMobil at the time, said that the facts remain that there are uncertainties around the climate and uh, what the political drivers of climate change are. The lead author of the study tweeted, quote, We now have airtight, statistically rigorous evidence that Exxon accurately predicted global warming years before it turned around and publicly attacked climate science and scientists. In that sense, this graph doesn't just communicate a crisis, it confirms complicity. And so people have been talking about Exxon new for years now, right? But this is just, this is slightly more rigorous study saying they actually knew exactly. You know, they didn't just know about the science of climate, of, of the greenhouse uh, gas warming. They knew, they, they predicted very accurately the warming that would occur. At the same time, a collective of 16 communities in Puerto Rico is suing various international organizations for the damages of Hurricane Maria and Irma that hit the island in 2017. According to The Guardian, the case, quote, alleges that international oil and oil companies, their trade associations, and a network of paid think tanks, scientists, and other operatives conspired to deceive the public, specifically residents of Puerto Rico, about the direct link between their greenhouse gas-emitting products and climate change. The communities are charging the groups with racketeering. Their lawyer said, quote, What's different about this case is that we have their enterprise in writing. The decision by rival companies, their front groups, scientists, and associations to act together to change public opinion regarding the use of their consumer products by telling people something that they knew was not true. The defendants include Exxon, Shell, BP, and Rio Tinto, who formed the Global Climate Coalition back in 1989, in which the lawsuit calls, quote, a non-for-profit corporation to influence advertise and promote the interests of the fossil fuel industry by giving false information to their consumers and the public at large. A U.S. government committee found last year that the biggest oil companies still have no plans to change course. Large companies like Chevron have also been began using racketeering charges against the people who sue them in order to drown their opponents in paperwork. And in Canada, the Pathways Alliance, which is a group of six companies that account for 95% of oil sands production, is now saying that they simply won't be able to comply with the proposed 42% emissions cap by 2030. And so this lawsuit is specifically saying these companies and their rivals work together with you know, scientists and so forth to deceive people. Yeah. They're alleging conspiracy. I mean, that makes some sense, given what we know. And like the Exxon News story as you mentioned, that somehow comes back with fresh and truly evil revelations seemingly every six months is, I think to me, the story that makes it impossible for me to accept the idea that there are not villains in the climate story. And like often I think in UN and or international relation type circles, you get this idea that we're all in it together trying to like just sort this out as like team humanity or something. Um, or that we need the oil industry to be a part of the solution for it to work. And so they keep getting invited back to the table again and again and again. And maybe at some point you'd think that these people would ask themselves why nothing else gets done. And maybe, just maybe, it's because we're inviting the tobacco industry to the lung cancer conferences and giving them top billing. You know, like, these oil giants have proven time and time again, that they have no interest in doing anything but delaying action. If Exxon 
or any of these other oil companies wanted to be a part of the solution, they would have done it. They would have done something 40 years ago. And so to pretend that they now are somehow going to wake up and change their tact is a level of cognitive dissidence that would be inspiring if it wasn't dooming us all. I mean, like, imagine this in any other scenario. If it turned out that the way Captain Crunch got their red berries red was with mercury, and they knew this 40 years ago, and spent the last 40 years poisoning you every time you reached for that crunchy goodness, all the while telling the world that they needed this cereal and that you couldn't really be sure if they were bad for you. Like, I think we as a society would rightly make the captain walk the plank. And yet, we, as we just learned this past week, the world and COP28, who have just announced an oil CEO as its president in particular are having these oil companies walk the red carpet instead. And it's bananas. Here's the thing. You know I'm a huge fan of an analogy. I use them frequently. I use them poorly. I use them all the time. And this is one of those situations where your Captain Crunch analogy is 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 lovely, to be sure. But at the same time, that is literally what those companies do, man. <laughs> So like, as you're describing it, you're like, what, they couldn't give us a product that was maybe going to kill us and be kind of wishy-washy about it? That's literally, because it's not that oil and gas companies, well, they are, they are uniquely bad the same way that like, I don't know, a firearms company is bad. You know what I mean? The product they're selling is, is, is a little more deadly than the average product. But at the same time, it's like, this is a condition of capitalism because at the end of the day, these companies are doomed to continue to, to force their quite literally toxic product on us because to do anything else would be illegal because their fiscal legal responsibility is to maximize return for their shareholders because that is the system that we operate within that is the system that we have opted as a society to operate within it is not the only system we can operate within but it's what we have it is the castle the fortress that we have built ourselves into is is this one whereby the only option is for these companies to bet against our well-being time and time and time and time again because their only priority is to make money for themselves. That's yeah. it. That's all. I should note that I do know listeners that red three, which is one particular type of red dye, does actually cause cancer in animals. So it is theoretically possible that my analogy is actually just describing what Captain Crunch is doing to kill us all. I thought I thought their stuff was like all white or beige. Growing up, yes, that was a majority of Captain Crunch, but then there was a special Captain Crunch that had the red uh, little balls that was like that I really liked specifically. It also oh, weirdly man. cut your mouth You're for a some red reason. Ball guy. Sort <laughs> of like when Special K had Special K with red berries. So it exactly. was like, it was like, we're going to tell your mom she's fat and disgusting, but we're going to give her little shavings of dried strawberries. <laughs> Like, like, at least those were, like, looked like strawberries and I think might have been strawberries. Captain Crunch red berries were just, like, again, probably carcinogenic food balls that cut the inside of your mouth. And yet, child me was really into it. Probably because it cut, it cut into your gums and then it allowed the sugar to enter the bloodstream directly. Bastard. Got you, got you, got you good and high. <laughs> uh, and now right. I'm thinking you were a very high child, weren't you? Ooh, 
sorry, before we, before we move on, I know we have to move on, but there was just that the really, the really quick headline about the pathways Alliance. I'll just repeat it verbatim group of six companies. They account for 95% of oil sands production. They have basically come out and say like, yeah, we're not gonna that 42% target by 2030. Not going to happen, baby too bad. So sad. Um, and the pathways Alliance is, is an Alliance that we've talked about before. I feel like I remember whining about them when I was at COP because they were at COP and it was really incredibly annoying um, because yeah, they're the, there are six companies that account for the vast majority of oil sands production and they exist purely to greenwash their production. Like they have banded together in this like PR, I don't know, PR soup basically to come out and be like, but look at all the good things we're doing. And they take footage of reclamation projects and like, women in mining instead of men in mining, like, you know what I mean? Like they literally just exist as PR spin for these companies to, to try to assure Canadians that don't worry, guys, we've got it under control. We're on your side. We freaking swear. And clearly they're not, we knew they're not. We, we obviously we're not, we never took them at their word at face value, but now that they've literally come out and been like, yeah, those caps, we're not, we're not hitting them too bad. Like, Anyway, um, so keep your eye on Pathways Alliance. Actually, if we're talking about bad advertisements that make you angry, that again, don't exist to sell anything except for the company itself. When I was home over the holidays watching like cable at my mom's house, um, I kept seeing these ads for the Pathways Alliance. And every time I'd be irate and every time my family was like, Lauren, we need you to like take take a pill, babe. You're going to be fine. Um, so yeah, now that I've told you about, or now that we've told you about Pathways Alliance, I feel like you're going to see them everywhere. At least I do again, cause I live in Ottawa. So it's like, I can't walk past like a bus station without like seeing a six by six poster that they've put up or whatever. Right. Yeah. What will they be advertising? They're literally like, they're, it'll, it'll be, it'll be the same type of thing as that bell advertisement. It'll be like a happy forest and maybe like a cute caribou or something. And they're literally just like, we're doing our part. Don't worry guys. Yeah. Like that's it. They, they literally just exist to try to convince people that like these companies are on your side. They know climate change is a bad thing and they're working on it. Yeah. They're exactly. They're working towards carbon neutral, maybe by 2200 or at some point, but they're working towards it. Don't worry about it. Which is so vague and so, um, spin doctory. It's, it's, it's laughable. It's hilarious. They're, they're working towards carbon neutral, truck drivers <laughs> the drivers themselves yeah. drivers will be forced to purchase carbon offsets the drivers will be robots those robots yeah. will run off of lithium-ion batteries <laughs> and they're rechargeable it's fine yeah. see this is the see if a just transition happened those drivers would at least have another job but you know Daniel smith doesn't want you the oil drivers who are replaced by robots to have a job. So I'll do the carbon credit thing and maybe maybe it'll be talked about more next week. Yeah, exactly. So a joint investigation by Guardian, Desite, and Source Material has found that 94% of the rainforest carbon offsets provided by Vera, which is the world's largest provider, are worthless and making the problem worse. They found that of the 95 million tons of carbon credits claimed, 
only five and a half million tons of emissions were reduced. So therefore, you have a bunch of people paying in order to be allowed to emit. And yet what they're paying for is not offsetting those emissions. Um, so according to The Guardian, quote, Vera, which is based in Washington, D.C., operates a number of leading environmental standards for climate action and sustainable development, including its voluntary carbon standard that has issued more than one billion carbon credits. It approves three quarters of all voluntary offsets. Its rainforest protection program makes up 40% of the credits it approves and was launched before the Paris Agreement with the aim of generating revenue for protecting ecosystems. The investigation also found that Vera vastly overstated deforestation threats and in some cases has been kicking people out of their homes to annex pieces of the rainforest. So this is a situation where you might have a park in Peru and Vera is now like, this is a carbon offset park. So now everybody who's here has to leave. That kind of thing. Yeah. And so we we wanted a little more time to dive into this because this article only came out today and is very long. And so we want to spend a bit more time to be able to like do a deeper dive. So we'll come back to it uh, next week. Uh, and we'll try to find someone to chat about it with us as well. If you have any suggestions, tweet at us. Also, tweet at us any photos you have of Pathway Alliance advertisements. I think that would be a fun game. Anytime you see a Pathways Alliance advertisement, tweet at the Green Majority, and we will find some way to make fun of it. And maybe, uh, if we get 10 of them, Dave will read a script written by Lauren to put you to sleep. No, that's what we agree. That's what we agreed upon. We need, we need a price. All we right. need a price. All right. All right, minimum $100 donation. Okay. But um, still tweet at us. I spend way too much time on Twitter and not nearly enough inter- not nearly enough time interacting with our lovely listeners. I yeah. don't know why I'm inviting this. Literally everything I've ever read says don't invite parasocial relationships on social media, but I feel like it's for the betterment of the show and I'm willing to make <laughs> that sacrifice. We're all doing something for the betterment of the show, you know? Um, but yeah, so we'll be back with an interview with Lucas Redman and Shauna Cannell, uh, two members, or two students at the University of Ottawa who are working on divestment and banking advocacy and had a big win we'll reveal during the interview. They have a win? There's a big win. That you're going to reveal? We'll reveal it. Okay. Woo-woo! The Green Majority is entirely listener-supported, and we would take this opportunity to graciously thank every individual donating to our Patreon page. Thank you very much. And I'll take myself another opportunity and uh, remind everyone that we are a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network, including other great shows like Left Turn Canada, Big Shiny Takes, and North Untapped. Thank you so much for listening.
And welcome back to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps on one of our greatly appreciated radio syndicates across the country. Or perhaps you found us on the podcast, which you found anywhere podcasts can be found, including the Harbinger Media Network. If you haven't checked them out, wonderful, whole bunch of shows over there. Go see them at Harbinger Media Network right now, immediately. Well, no, wait, listen to this interview and then go. That's my suggestion. As previewed earlier on the show, I am here with Lucas Redman, the president of Club Club, and Shada Cannell, executive member of Climate Justice Ottawa. And we're talking about divestment and banking advocacy on the University of Ottawa's campus, including a big win that just happened very recently, but I don't want to steal your thunder, so we'll get to that in a half second. But first, A, thank you so much for being here, and B, as wave introduction, how did each of you get interested in activism and what sort of drew you to divestment and banking action specifically? And we'll start with you, Lucas, and then we'll go to Sean. All right. So I originally got started in this this way by becoming president of a club. One of the main things I had to do as president was make a bank account for my, my organization. And so the club system is through the union itself, which like, Great. I love it. But I noticed there was some, some minor issues with it. So when I went to make a bank account, I noticed that they were pushing clubs to bank with RBC, which has a local branch on campus. And I, like very unfortunate, like I, I dislike RBC a lot. Like <laughs> they, they do invest in a lot of fossil fuels. They, they invest in pipelines that go through like indigenous lands and stuff like that, which is very unfortunate and like evil almost. So Basically, I decided to bring this issue to a general assembly of our union. And it was it was very well received, I would say, at this general assembly. I mean, like there was almost no votes against it. I think I think there weren't any actually. It was just two abstentions. And it was very important for the union's mission as well, because they have a policy of divestment. They try to avoid any sort of investments in fossil fuels as well. I thought it was very wrong that they were like pushing people to bank with RBC. So I, I decided to do something about it. And I guess the fruits of my actions came to fruition. Amazing. And we'll get to that in a half second. I love the tease though. Always nice to keep the, keeps the audience listening. Shauna, how about yourself? I always was passionate about climate change and I really want to, wanted to push past individualistic action. And when I, when I learned about climate justice, you auto, it really seemed a great way to do a, a positive impact. And I really wanted to get involved in the fight against climate change. And I really liked the perspective of climate justice. So I was really excited to join. And now I've been a member for almost two years. Amazing. Thanks so much. And so now, Lucas, what were you organizing towards? You sort of given us that hint already. But how did your win come about? How did the organizing continue? And, and what ultimately was the success? Yeah, so I basically wanted to get my union to be more sustainable. I mean, like little actions can help, of course, but there are very like big issues that come with partnering with these organizations. I mean, like we're we're like a large union, so it, it's kind of important that we set an example. And so I I was organizing towards trying to get more people to acknowledge the aspects of partnering with these banks, as well as um, getting other unions 
as well as my own to stop partnering with them and maybe in the future getting the school to stop partnering with them. So, I mean, like I, I reached out to a number of different organizations on campus to try and get them to come support me and the rest of the union in making this change. So it, it ended up being very successful. I, I've seen definitely changes that I, I like to see. And yeah, it ended well. And now like the union is searching for another bank other than Scotiabank, which is a pretty large organization that does invest in fossil fuels. So they're looking at a number of different options. So I, I to see that my small action made a big difference. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, what we saw here was actually successfully, because organizers across Canada are trying to find different ways to sort of push RBC off campus. And often that ends up sort of be going after the institution. However, you sort of took a unique tact in, in, in something they had a little more influence over, which was the student union itself. Yeah. And like the unions themselves do have some influence over the school's decision making. So I hope in the future that we can push UOSU to push RBC off campus. I mean, it's going to take a lot of work and a lot of like convincing on this on our behalf as well as the union's behalf because the school has a contract with them and that's very legally binding so they can't just say like oh get off our campus now they have to like wait until the contract is over but unfortunately it did take like a student space so hopefully we can use that aspect to push them away right for sure so Shadi, you mentioned that you've sort of been working on this sort of divestment and banking file for the last two years. And last year, the University of Ottawa actually pledged to divest. And one of the most interesting turnarounds, most often divestment says we're going to take five years. And I think U of T gave themselves nine or something like that. Whereas U of O almost said like immediately, they want to finish it by the end of this year. And so like, A, how did that sort of win come about? And sort of what's the history there? And then, and then B, how has the progress gone on this? Where are we at now? Yeah, it was a big shock to us too. It, it actually like kind of blindsided us because we were putting a lot of pressure on Ottawa to divest and all of a sudden we're like, okay, we're going to do it. It was it was quite surprising. And Climate Justice was only founded in 2020. So our, our presence on campus is still pretty recent and a lot of it was during the pandemic. So a lot of the action we took was educating the, the student online or um, doing presentation online. We had a big petition that we got a lot of signature on. We also work climate action in Carleton because Carleton was also investing in fossil fuels. So we collaborated also with our university, but the the campus has a long of a history of pushing for um, the funding. There was an organization that was called Fossil Fuel Yarwa that existed like years ago, but they dismantled. We're not exactly sure when. So that took us by surprise and we're really happy to, to hear those news. And we also work with like uh, other organizations such as Banking for on a Better Future to help us out a bit, but that's also a little bit more focused on, on the bank and on RBC and stuff like that. And one of the goal of climate justice is trying to to hold the university ac accountable. And this semester, we really want to try to to get like updates, but in the past, the university has really not been super cooperative, especially when we're trying to, to divest, when we're sending them, them a lot of emails, but hopefully they would have some good news that they would be excited to share with us. And if they don't, well, we'll just try to keep pushing until we get answers. That makes a lot of sense. And I'm curious because back in the fall, we chatted with some folks who are organizing in 
University of Toronto after the school accepts divestment, which is like, what do you do next, right? There's this sort of question that comes up, which is once you've got them to agree, what, where do you go? And so I'm curious what you're thinking and what your organization's thinking is about how do you shift from this kind of particular sort of strict divestment campaign to what sort of what, what are you pushing for next? Yeah, what we're really pushing next, our all action are mainly going to be focused on RBC. We're also open for like student of organization to bring another idea. But right now it's really on our RBC, which is also good because we also started this campaign before the divestment. But we did ask ourselves like a few meetings being like, okay, what do we, what do we do now? What do we want to focus now? And the two recurring team was RBC and holding the university accountable. So really want to push, push for, for the, the university to give us updates. But we also have a lot of really want to plan a few action against RBC. This is especially like a, a prime time this semester because there is Move Your Money Day, which is pushing for an individual and to, to, to change, to take their business away from think that invest, invest in fossil fuel. There's also the general annual meeting of RBC, which is a great, great time to, to push for action because they get a lot of me, media attention at that time. But it's also a great, great time for us to show the world that they're investing so much in fossil fuel and the negative impact of that. Awesome. And that actually leads perfectly to the next question, which Lucas, you touched on a little bit and Shana, you just touched on there too, which is uh, most listeners, I think most people who are really deep in climate activism sort of understand why RPC sort of gets the specific ire of activists. But I think from an outside perspective, it's not necessarily obvious. You know, they are one of the big five banks like every other big five bank. And so what is it specifically about RBC and RBC on campus that sort of drew your specific attention and led you to organizing these kinds of these kind of actions? Can we start with the Lucas and then Sean if you have any other thoughts? Okay, so this kind of goes back to the union. In 2018, we changed unions. There was a little bit of a, a scandal at the other union that involved some bad things that led to some charges. So that union folded and the university changed its contract to UOSU. And so in that time, they invited RBC onto campus and they took over a like 24 hour study space. It was very well used. It was right beside the dining hall. So it, it was very like, it, it was kind of a slap in the face to students. And now it's like, I, I barely see anyone in there. There's it's almost pointless to have there because they don't have any bank tellers or anything. They just have like financial advisors. So it's like, okay, <laughs> what's the point of having this here? A lot of the issues that led to me targeting this action was like the stuff that happened in 2018. But as well, they, they were like, they're charging students more than other banks for certain things. It's like, <laughs> what can we do to fix it? And so this was a small way of doing that. And Shana, for yourself and your your folks? Yeah, for us, it was really frustrating to see uh, to come back to campus and see that RBC just opened a branch, it took a study space, as Lucas mentioned. And it was also even even more frustrating once the, the university divested because it's like, okay, you divested, but here is this massive bank funding so much money in fossil fuel and it's really like it, it shows that the university loves to say that they they care about our future and about the environment but they let this institution 
on a campus. And also students are quite vulnerable because they're, they're pretty brand new and exploring the world of finance on their own. And RBC loves to pretend that they care about the student and our future. There's even multiple workshops targeted, especially for international students, which may seem convenient, helpful, especially if you, if you live on campus. But they, they don't care about us. They, they're really here to get new clients that are young. They're going to bring them many years of business. And people are quite loyal to our bank. It's hard to convince people to change bank. So I think it's, it's pretty predatory to have this organization on campus that really just take advantage of the, the lack of knowledge of student on, on the world of banking. And as Lucas said, they do not offer us better deals because of our student. They love to say that they offer us great deal, but they, they don't. But a lot of people don't know what the good deals are. So it, it's quite frustrating to see. Yeah, for sure. So for folks, again, because some of these wins are pushing and fighting that is currently existing across Canada and, and campuses, really, I'll, I'll, I'd imagine most campuses have at least some version of a divestment campaign or some version of a RBC targeting campaign at this point. So I'm curious if, if either of you or both of you actually have advice for people who are beginning to work on these kind of causes in their campuses. And we can start with you, Shauna, and then go to you, Lucas. I would say it really depends where your, your campus is at at this moment. If there's really like no environmental club or anything, I would say like just start a club, try to get as much as like advertising for your club, ask other organization on campus to share your posts, really try to get some, some traction on social media. And it's like other organization on campus also great because if they, they share they help you get attention. They, the target audience is going to already be there from their following. And if there's already an environmental club on campus, I would say for students that are interested in joining environmental movement to, to join them and to bring up the, the topic of divestment and the, of big bank and try to, to um, push your organization through that, that direction. And I would also say to try to create a link with better, bigger organization, like I mentioned, banking on a better future is is great to help you organize around those issues. And it's not, it's really not always easy to, to fight this fight. It's sometimes it can be frustrating. And especially when you got the start or we have not that many member at a point, it, it can be really frustrating, but just keep on trying. And it's it, trying is really the first step to, to a success. Awesome. And, and Lucas? Yeah, I would have to agree with Ashana. Cherish the small wins. I mean, <laughs> they're really important and they can help boost your like attitude towards this sort of thing. And hopefully they can help you build up in the future and like partner with as many people as you can. It's very <laughs> important to have groups when you're doing things like this, because like together we can change whatever we want. Awesome. And we talked about it a little bit, but I'd love to hear a little bit more about what's next for you and your organizing. And we start with Lucas and then Shana. Yeah. So I think what's next for us, or me especially, is probably continuing to push to get RBC off of campus. I mean, it's pretty, pretty important. And I want the union to take a stronger stance on things like this. So getting them to change banks to like someone who doesn't invest in fossil fuels, which is hard to find, especially for bigger organizations that are like within a close enough distance to your offices. It's like, a lot of barriers to this, but I mean, like credit unions are great. So probably pushing it to be a credit union. Another thing I want to achieve is getting a lot of the clubs on campuses to bank with credit unions instead of RBC. 
because the RBC thing has been going on for a long time. They've even funded events at that are union holds. So it's like finding a replacement for them that's more sustainable, more equitable, and more easy to access. Awesome. And Shana? Yeah, as mentioned earlier, we're going to put, we're going to try to do more action around RBC, where is it raise awareness on campus? Because a lot of people are not aware of this still. And honestly, I would love to, to collaborate with Lucas in the future. I think he really inspires us to uh, take a different angle on this issue. Because for us, it's putting a lot of pressure on the university doing action, but we never really thought of using like the student general meeting to, to pass such a motion, which was super efficient. So I think, yeah, doing more action, trying to, to think of new, new ways to put pressure for RBC to, to leave our campus, honestly. Awesome. And so if folks want to follow along with your work or learn more about what you're up to, how can they do that? I would say the best way to, to keep up with us is via our Instagram, CJCU Ottawa, U Ottawa. It's really where we put all information and all our action. Yeah, I mean, pretty similar for me. I, I would suggest like following other clubs on campus is pretty important on social media. I mean, like, I you can follow me if you want. I like to post stuff about what I'm doing on there, but it's a number of issues I focus on, not just on environmental initiatives. But I, I do like suggest following organizations that you would want to join or be interested in. And then if you want to be more informed on what we're going to do next, like definitely reach out. Say hi. Well, first, congratulations to the two of you. Secondly, it is our tradition on the show to give our guests the last word of the show. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to do a readout. I'm going to thank you both for being here. And then I'm going to throw to you. And we can go for Lucas and then Shauna just so you guys can, can know which direction we're going to go. And any last thoughts you want to share? We're, we're syndicated on about five or six stations across Canada. So imagine yourself talking to anyone who might be listening and what you want to, would want to share to them about the work that you're doing and how we can you know, continue this kind of kind of pressure. But before we get there, thank you both so much to the two of you. This has been Lucas Redman, the president of Club Club, as well as many other things, and Shauna Cannell, executive member of Climate Justice Ottawa. Congratulations on the two of you for your wins already and good luck in the future. And yeah, any last thoughts? Well, first, I want to thank you for having me. It's been a really great experience. And for everybody listening, I mean, try try and focus on the small things because eventually they become big. For me, I would like to, to also thank you, Stefan, for having us. And I would also like to thank Lucas for his great, his great work. But I'll say it's never too late to join an environmental organization. And doing a little is better than doing nothing.